From John Jay College of Criminal Justice in Manhattan, I'm Dear Elisa Avila Chevalier. And I'm Nick Rodrigo. This is They Are Just Deportees, the official podcast of the social anatomy of a deportation regime. On today's show, we speak with Professor Shirley Lado on the struggle CUNY students have been engaged in for their right to education and their role at the forefront of the immigrant rights movement. To what extent non-citizen status affects the mental health and sense of belonging for CUNY students? Each year, about 65,000 undocumented students graduate from U.S. high schools. Because of the Obama-era policy of deferred action for childhood arrivals, most are legally protected from deportation and are able to study and work within the U.S. as long as their status as DACA recipients remains active. Under the Trump administration, critics of the policy, including the president himself, have sought to weaken DACA's provisions and make it increasingly more difficult to maintain protections under the law. As a result, DACA students are among the most vulnerable to the emotional stress and anxiety surrounding deportation. In this episode, we'll be discussing the way in which the expansion of immigration, immigrant categories such as deportation, including temporary protected status recipients and potential DACA holders, has the potential to contribute to a public health crisis. In New York City, a sanctuary city, many students have expressed how polit- the political climate has impacted their mental health and well-being, particularly as they balance the stresses of college. With us today is Dr. Shirley Lado. Born in the Bronx, Dr. Lado was raised in Castle Hill Projects. She earned a PhD in and is now an assistant professor of criminal justice at the Borough of Manhattan Community College, CUNY. A critical criminologist, Dr. Lado's research focuses on deportation effects, including the impact of fear resulting from the vulnerability to deportation. Her research interests include immigration, deportation, social disorganization, crimmigration, and the impact of all of the above on mental health. Professor Leto is currently working on a research project exploring the impact of deportability on belonging, on belonging and membership of CUNY non-citizen students. Her latest publication, Crimmigration, Deportability, and the Social Exclusion of Non-Citizen Immigrants, discusses, discusses findings from her research and is available via open access. She has a blog, The Academica, a blog about this Latinx's struggles as I navigate the halls of the Ivory Tower, and is also a member of the leadership team for the Latina Researchers Network. Dr. Lado is a certified mental health first aid instructor and is also part of the social media campaign, This Is What a Professor Looks Like. She is co-editor of Outside Justice, Immigration, and the Criminalizing Impact of, of Changing Policy and Practice. Welcome to They Are Just Deportees, Dr. Lado. Thank you for having me. Um, well, I'll begin with the first question. Yeah. So what is the CUNY Belonging Survey? What exactly does it look like and how did you come to develop this project? So the CUNY Belonging Study is my research project and what it does, it looks at uh, the feelings of belonging and membership on the part of CUNY non-citizen in, um, students. So not just the undocumented um, population and not just DACA. So it's not just DACA, excuse me, I just want it's not just the DACA students, mm-hmm. right? Um, because there is a concentration in much of the rhetoric about DACA students alone, but there are only about, there are less than a million DACA students in the entire country. Most of our undocumented students don't have any status, including DACA, right? So what, th- what brought it up 
the reason why I came up with the community belonging study is it is a product of this current administration. So my research, the previous research study that I conducted was looking at the impact that fear has on the lives of vulnerable immigrants, those that are vulnerable to deportation. And what I found among many um, other findings, one of the findings that I was very interested in was that being deportable, being vulnerable to deportation leads uh, these folks to feel, and by the way, it wasn't just undocumented people. I had almost 50-50 documented, undocumented. And by documented, I mean um, green card holders. And uh, so being vulnerable to deportation made people feel like they, they weren't welcome in this country and they don't belong. And so I had many people who were here for decades say things like, well, this isn't my country, right? Or um, uh, I'm not wanted. And that was really interesting um, because there was also a lot of language of trauma that was being used by the participants of the study. And so w one of the findings is that being vulnerable to deportation leads to psychological trauma and feelings of um, not belonging, feelings that you're not a member of this country, even though you've been here for decades, even though you've had children here, even though you have homes here, you have work here, your children went to college here, or you go to college here. Um, you, you feel like you're not wanted and you don't belong. And there is a correlation between belonging and mental well-being. So since that study, I was very much interested in the psychological impacts of deportability. And then fast forward, you know, um, to the current administration. And in 2017, when the announcement was made that DACA was going to be rescinded, um, and just, just the election, right, because the rhetoric, the campaign rhetoric being used before the election was all about immigration and how you know how harsh this current administration was going to be with immigrants right like uh, the day that the current president made the announcement that he was going to run for president um, the speech was all about how immigrants are criminals right remember bad hombres remember and then his mm -hmm. his ratings went up like 17 points like like in the polls so his campaign platform was very heavy anti-immigrant so just after, right after the election, there was a lot of uncertainty, there was a lot of fear among many of the folks I knew, many of the communities, the immigrant communities I was affiliated and familiar with because this person who was threatening to take away so many of the little bit of progress that was done in the previous administration, they were like, what's gonna happen? And then the announcement rescinding DACA uh, was made. Um, and, and also, you know, the first, one of the first people who was made head of the Department of Homeland Security, who was later the chief of staff, right, this guy John Kelly, um, he said, right, every undocumented person should worry, right? He, he, wasn't, he wasn't saying, he wasn't making a, uh, he wasn't differentiating who was going to be deported, right? He said this on TV, every undocumented person. And Jeff Sessions also. Oh, yeah. And General I mean, Jeff Sessions comes J in and top well, lawyer saying exactly So, the, so the thing about Jeff Sessions, what's interesting is he has a long history um, of, of wanting to deport immigrants, right? So the 1996 anti-immigrant legislations, you know, um, Jeffrey, what's his name? Bodegard Sessions? Like, I forget what his name is. You might have to take <laughs> that out. But Jeff Sessions was an integral... Um, playmaker in those 1996 anti-immigrant legislations, right? So Ira, Ira, which criminalized um, some uh, made misdemeanors, kind of like felonies and deportable 
um, offenses, he was involved in that, right? So he has this long history. It's not just mm, yeah. under this administration. He's, you know, he goes back to then. Um, and when we think about deportation and the deportation regime, it's really a product of those 1996 laws, right? Um, and so it's interesting that this, uh, I, I guess it, it makes sense, right, that the current administration would hire as, you know, the, the, the head of the Justice Department, the man who, you know, who played a big role in that. Yeah. in that type of legislation. So so they made, you know, there's all this rhetoric about DACA, about how we're going to deport all of these undocumented individuals. And um, as a person who works at a public university, um, as a person who works with um, first-generation college students, mm-hmm. um, first- and second-generation immigrants, I saw first, and as a person who researches, right, the very population that's the target of many of the policies that this current administration um, uh, focuses on, I saw firsthand the anxiety that many of my students were going through, right? But And then I saw a lot of pledges and a lot of meetings and a lot of town halls um, that we're going to help our non-citizen students, we're going to help our DACA students, we're going to help our undocumented individuals, right? And there was kind of like this long wait. Uh, people were waiting to hear what uh, administrators and all the universities around the country were going to say. Do we stand by our students? Are we going to um, are we going to protect our students? Are we going to allow ICE onto campuses? You know, there was all this talk right after the administration um, started to talk about rescinding DACA and started to talk about how we're going to start pushing and deporting people. And and so I wanted to know whether or not the pledges that cities were making that w- we're going to be a sanctuary city and in particular because i'm right i'm faculty member at a college dealing with young people many of them come from mixed status families so it's not even just them that have this precarious immigration status they are in families that have right that, that you know are mixed status so they could be citizens but one of their parents or both are not citizens so i really wanted to know how students were receiving these assurances which um, were late in coming um, and incomplete and no guarantees, right? Because any public uni- any university that takes money from the government can't say right. we're a sanctuary city or we're not going to allow it, right? They're not going to say that. Um, so I just wanted to see how the, the students were receiving it because I saw how anxious they were. Students were approaching me, what's going to happen to my doctor? What's going to happen to my job? What's going to happen to my car? You're right, because, you know, you know, one of the things that DACA is great for even though it is deferred action, it is not a guarantee against deportation, all that means is that they're put in the back of the line, right, but they're not protected from deportation, is that it allowed them to get a number that allowed them to get a job, right? It gave them some type of protection. And it that really did bring stability to many of these folks who they are, in some instances, are going to be the major household providers, mm-hmm. right? So it did bring stability in a very precarious position for many of these young people. Um, I wanted to see how they were receiving this news. CUNY says it's the American dream machine, right? It banked on it. Um, and, and it was, it was uh, I don't want to say banked on it, but it, it definitely promoted itself as the American dream machine. Um, when uh, in, I think it's 2017, uh, you would go onto the website, the general CUNY website, and it would say, we're the American dream machine, right? Um, a, a sizable population of students across CUNY are first or second generation immigrants, right? Um, so so I wanted to know how students felt. Do they feel protected? Do they feel that the university has their back? Um, 
on student on the campus, right? Because if if it's true that CUNY is the American dream machine, then there's an obligation for them to protect these students that are be, being targets of the administration. But there's only so f how far they can go, right? Um, and also because I was witness to some of the side eyes, right? Like students would be at some of these meetings and the administrators would be like, we support you and yada, yada. And, you know, students would be like, you know. And, and for those of you who can't see me because this is a podcast, I'm <laughs> saying they're like rolling their eyes. <laughs> um, so I said, you know what? I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask them about whether or not. Right. So how do I figure this out? Right. And so I was trying to figure out how do I combine my interest in mental health and its association with the portability, um, the findings about belonging and membership that I got from the previous study, and the current political climate. Like how do I, how do I try to bring this, how do I consolidate all of these different interests in a workable study where I can actually say something, right? Because it's not like, um, I didn't want to just ask students, do you, how do you feel, and then not have any systematic way of de delivering the results and saying this is what we have to do. So I came up with the CUNY Belonging Study where I conducted a survey um, based on self-esteem and belonging. And what I wanted to know was whether or not um, students felt they, they belonged to their college campus. Um, because it is true that one of the ways in which we can integrate if we're going to use that word, right, into society is through our school system. And one of the ways in which uh, persons feel that they can reach social mobility, uh, the American dream, whatever, is through a college education, right? College education is one of the ways in which it is still accepted and seen as a way for you to reach that social mobility. Um, which, by the way, I just have to say, this is a tangential, but, you know, that is true. Right, social mobility through a college degree, it has been shown that's, that's one of the ways mm. in which you reach social mobility. And then we had this push in the 1970s and in the 80s for college for all, right? Because not everybody had the opportunity to get that social mobility that was accessible through a college education. And now that we have so many people from underrepresented populations attending college, now all of a sudden you hear this rhetoric, you don't really need college, go to trade school, become a plumber, right? right? And it comes from people who have their college degrees right and and people who come from those normally protected groups right so it's i find it really interesting that now that college has is being accessible and is accessible to many more people of color and other marginalized communities um, other communities affected by race um, sexism and capitalism right now all of a sudden you have so many people from these groups you know, in college, now people are like, oh, but we don't need college, right? They're trying to diminish the, the quality of a college education. But, but you know, that was a tangent, um, and you don't have to use that. Uh, I just always have to say that. But um, so, so I, I felt that a college setting, A, because it's also convenient, I work in a college setting, but also I was witnessing a lot of the anxiety, the uncertainty, the insecurity that my students, all students, but in particular, my first and generation immigrant students, um, non-citizen students were experiencing, I wanted to know what the school was doing and if their promises was wor was working, were working. And um, yeah, does that make sense? Like, yeah, you know, totally. I was trying to yeah. bring all of this together into a study and this is how I came with the CUNY belonging study. Yeah, um, I mean, that also brings me to my next question. Like, 
why is a sense of belonging important in this context? Mm -hmm. You know, some people would say, well, you're just there for a few years, just finish, get out. Like, it's not necessarily important to build community or feel, feel a sense of belonging. And what does belonging look like for, for CUNY students? So a sense of belonging just in general is important, right? But for the college community, I think that what happens is if you are in college for a particular purpose, which is to get the degree or to get the education, that's going to provide you with the social mobility. If you don't feel you belong, how is it possible for you to actually achieve the outcome that you entered in the first place? Um, and that is going to affect um, people academically, also whether or not they stay in college. Um, and also, I think that you know people, people make lifelong relationships in college as well. I mean, like I have friends from back in the day growing up. I have friends from when I was in elementary school. But I have very meaningful relationships that I established when I was in college, right? And so your college experiences really do, because you're you're coming into a time in your life when it's one of the first times that you are on your own for many people. Mm -hmm. um, you're expected to be an adult, right? So um, you're not given review tests <laughs> or, or review sheets before an exam. You're also expected to produce your own um, stuff. Uh, so there's a lot of stuff that happens when you're in college. And, and this is your first experiences of being an, an adult. So, so what happens in college, just like what happens in middle school, right, really does impact you later on. Um, feelings of belonging and membership in college for many of these students is gonna is gonna have in, an impact for the rest of their life, and so if college is the mechanism by which they want to reach social mobility, if college is seen as a way in which people can integrate into society, and you not you don't feel like you belong in that environment, that's gonna that's gonna affect how you integrate or how you feel about the society or your your, your environment in general. And so belonging for a CUNY student, it differs, and I'm still analyzing the data. <laughs> um, what I, one of the meaningful results that I saw was that students who are members of clubs or who, are, who involve themselves in activities in school, do, those students felt more of a sense of belonging to the college campus than those students who are not able to participate in activities or belong to clubs. So that's a big deal. Um, uh, the other thing that I saw with belonging is students who have DACA felt a more sense of belonging to the school because, so I have to be careful because I'm, I'm not finished looking at this data. So let me say it this way. Students who cannot receive financial help mm -hmm which is every undocumented student, right, unless it's a private scholarship, mm. those students who do not receive any financial help and therefore have to pay out of pocket, therefore maybe work one or two jobs, three jobs, whatever it is that they have to do to pay their tuition, those students who, cannot, who do not qualify for financial help felt less of a sense of belonging. Mm. That makes sense, right? Because if there's money available for students to pay for their education, but you are not, er you are not uh, eligible for that, for that funding, how then you're excluded. Mm. So you're a different type of student. Mm. So you're not even a student. Like you, you know, for them, it's like I, I don't belong to this group, right? So there's this exclusivity that comes with funding, um, which is why the New York State Dream Act was such a big deal. 
mm-hmm. um, which, you know, we're still waiting on how people get funded because so far nobody's gotten funded. <laughs> yeah. And so we don't know how that process is working out. But the, the sorry, just the, the sort of those who spearheaded the movement for the DREAM Act were your quote-unquote dreamers, right? Some of them going on a hunger strike, I believe. Some of them doing, like, real direct action. Yeah, yeah. And, and the organization that was, you know, one of the pioneers of this DREAM Act movement were, uh, for the New York State DREAM Act, was the New York State Youth Leadership Council. Mm. Uh, they spoke at our conference. Of course, yeah. And, um, you know, the thing about, you know, it's student-led, and, you know, th- th- that's, that's one of the great things that happens, right? Because if, you know... They're the ones that are mostly impacted, and so they should be spearheading, you know, these. You are listening to They Are Just Deportees, the official podcast of the Social Anatomy of Deportation Regime. You can find more information about us and our events at www.sadrjohnjay.com. Um, so I'm going to amalgamate sort of the next two questions, mm-hmm. which concerns your study um, or, and the findings. And I know you can't speak too much because you're still sort of mm-hmm. harvesting the data and analysing it. But uh, was there a connection between... What was the connection between immigration status, belonging and mental health issues for non-citizen students? And more specifically, um, were there uh, any variables uh, and differences in reporting along the lines of varying forms of status but also uh, variables like race class gender these types of these types of variables as well um, so I'll, I'll just say a little bit about that because I am really yeah um, and it's it takes me a little longer because I struggled with stats <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah um, so but I will say that you know some of the, d- the data that I, I can speak to now is that there is a weak negative correlation with membership and uh, membership and self-esteem, which what that means is that CUNY membership is more important to students with a less secure immigration status. So uh, the importance that being a member of the college community um, is more important to those who don't have DACA, mm-hmm. right? Um, and part of that I think is there's more reliance on the promises that these schools have made to them. Um, and I have to say more about that, which is why I'm trying to be cautious, right? Because I'm making, I'm making a, a conclusion about something that I'm still looking at. And this is also based not just on the quantita- quantitative data, but also I had um, qualitative questions. And so I asked them to elaborate a little bit on p- some particular responses that they gave. The other thing that I can say is that CUNY is more important to the identity of students with less secure immigration status. So um, students who are undocumented, fully undocumented, feel that belonging to the college community is more important. Um, or, or, you know, they, they gave belonging m- more weight than those who had a green card or those who have DACA. And I'm still trying to figure out what that means and what the context is, and I'm still looking at the qualitative data. But I think what one, one of the things we can conclude is that the school needs to do more in terms of making these students feel like they're welcome because they are relying on these schools to make them feel welcome. 
right? They're not saying I don't need CUNY and I'm, I got my own and I can handle my own. They are relying on the promises and the assurances that these administrators have made, right? And so, and, and you know, even I, I remember a couple of years ago, right after the um, election, this was right after I was at a talk, I was on a panel and we were talking, you know, about what was happening. And this woman in the audience asked, uh, there were two undocumented students on the panel, and she said, are you worried about being out as undocumented because not you know they're being really aggressive and the one of the young people said no because i'm expecting you to have my back <laughs> right i'm not going to go back into the shadows yeah. i'm going to stay out of the shadows and it's up to you to back me up and that was i mean even still to you know the 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 hairs on my arm still go up when i think about that cuz that's the truth right like they are taking this courageous step of being out there, and we need to make sure that we stand behind them. And administrators can say all they want and promise all they want, but when, when the time comes, are you ready to... Because these students are clearly relying on that, right? They have my back. They, they are putting their faith in the promises and assurances that these administrators have done. And I think it's important to, to recognize that. And that's a heavy responsibility. It reminds me of a tweet I read um, during like the really like intense days of the Black Lives Matter movement during the Ferguson protests, and someone had a, um, a Twitter sort of thread that says, "I don't want an ally. Mm -hmm. Fuck allies. Mm -hmm. I want an accomplice. An accomplice. Right? Yeah. I want an accomplice. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't want someone. I want someone to drive the getaway car rather than someone to send off fifty dollars <laughs> in an exactly. envelope. Right? <laughs> exactly. So, and I think that 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 yeah. and I think really cut to the core of that. That that. What that student said and other, other experiences with some of the students and young people that I um, worked with and interacted with, it kind of informs the type of work that I'm trying to do, mm -hmm. right? Like, I want a study and I want results so that I can say, you need to do better, right? So let's, you know, we need to figure out how to help finance or fund the education of these students the same way any other student right. needs funding, right? It's not giving, you know, like when you say, we have this money, oh wait, but you don't qualify. Or, or what happens, like for example, a couple of students I know applied for this job as mentors. They took the whole training, everything. And when it came time to fill out the paperwork, excuse me, when it came time to fill out the paperwork, um, the administrator was like, oh wait, you don't have DACA. So, so again, this is a, right. a benefit that DACA brings is that you know these folks, young people, were able to to work, and these were fully undocumented students who went through the whole training process, and then were told at the last minute that they don't qualify, right? Again, you're differentiating these 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 folks from each other, and these people are now left out. Of course they're not going to feel that they belong or that there's a sense of exclusion when they don't qualify for the same thing that any other student, right? But for everything else, they would qualify except this one status. So I think, you know, one of the things that we need to, and, and we're working on it. I know there's a big push, you know, CUNY-wide and also on individual college campuses is to figure out ways in which to help fund the education for students across the board, irrespective of status, right? There can't be any clear, bright line, right? It's hard, it's hard for a student to come in already and then disclose that they don't have that social security number or they don't have that number. And then, you know, it's embarrassing too, right? And, and it's like this whole tedious process. And then 
you know, you make that line and you fill out the forms and they're like, oh no, you can't do it. Like it, that's a problem. So we need to do better. And I know we're on that road, but at, you know, at least, you know, I, I can say this is what, this is what we know the students are saying and how they feel. And this is why we need to do that. Yeah. It also reminds me of something you talked about, um, in your study about how there's like this irony of like CUNY touting itself as like this, um, high-ranking institution of social mobility and then at the same time inviting ICE to come recruit on campuses and like what does that say oh my god to like the undocumented students and the non-citizen students on campus you know so bad so bad I remember after uh, my school my and my school was one of them right ICE was on the BMCC campus and First of all, ICE has money. They don't need to recruit. Right. Yeah. <laughs> they, you know, they have all. They have a lot of government support. They don't need to recruit on college campuses. Largest law enforcement in the country. Right. Yeah, country exactly. Rights. And they're getting, you know, more money. So, but yeah, like, how do you justify allowing this group that you know is and and you don't even know like. It's also, you know, because these officers have discretion. You don't know if one of them is in there, you know, casing the place. Mm. You know, finding out whether is there an undocumented student club and where do they meet and you know, like we, we, you can't trust that. But but I think it was it's just outrageous that any campus would allow ICE to recruit on campus. They don't need to recruit. They have money, so there's no reason for them to go out and seek people to sign up for them. And especially on a campus that claims it's going to be a sanctuary, there's just I, I don't see how you can reconcile that. It's outrageous. I mean, it really is. It's really it's fucked up. That's <laughs> what it is, you know. So yeah, that's one of the things that came out. So so BMCC had an event um, where um, I was able to speak about my study, and um, one of the administrators said, like, "What can we do?" And I did mention, you know, why is ICE right. recruiting on college campuses? There's no reason for them to be on a college campus, especially a campus where you know there are undocumented students. What are you telling these students? You know, and this is why they roll their eyes, right? right? And 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 to claim ignorance, you know, sometimes these administrators don't realize or whatever. That's yeah, like that's it doesn't ridiculous. get doesn't get more explicitly. Yeah, come on. <laughs> yeah, and and the other thing I think, which John Jay is doing a great job with, is I feel like there should be uh, in a center for non-citizen students or an immigration student center um, on all the campuses, mm -hmm. and and I think the model is the one that John Jay has. Mm. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, the next question is regarding CUNY's reaction, particularly to things like men the mental health, the impending sort of mental health crisis. Have they provided provisions? And maybe even sort of like an addendum to that question would be how can professors and also colleagues of these students provide these safe spaces or, you know, for those who might be suffering <clears throat> from this, this, this sense of alienation. and So I don't know the answer to the question of how they're responding to mental health because mm. there is no, as far as I know, I could be wrong, but I don't know of any CUNY-wide initiative to specifically address the mental health needs of students who are targets. I know that all CUNY campuses have counseling centers. Mm. I don't know if e each individual center is having an, um, an initiative on their campus. But I will tell you, for instance, BMCC um, has a counseling center and 
Uh, we've done the mental health first aid trainings. We've done a lot of them. But that's not immigrant or non-citizen students specific, right. right? It's for all, anybody who wants to take the training. I don't know of any particular type of initiative. I could be wrong, but I don't know of CUNY-wide initiative to, to address the particular mental health needs of this unique population. Um, and, you know, I'm going to say, one day I was on this campus, and there was somebody with a red hat that said, make America great again, right? Um, and I guess they have every right to wear that hat. Um, we need to acknowledge that there are many, many students across CUNY that are allies and accomplices, and there are some that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's hard for, for me to say, like, what can we do better? I mean, to me, it would be like, don't allow that hat on any campus, yeah. right? For me, it would be an immigrant student center uh, or student immigration center, you know, like, a, right. like one that's here. Um, faculty, uh, one of the, a very simple way in which faculty, faculty can help is just to stay away from the stigmatizing language, right? And so faculty, there are some faculty that still use the word illegal within the context of referring to our students, mm. not just saying illegal immigrant, but just using the word illegal. Um, and, you know, we just want to be careful. Like, I don't like to say you're here illegally, right? I'll say, you know, um, there's no documentation or whatever, but like we want to just be careful with the language that we use and That's not everybody important. is, yeah. yeah, not everybody is aware of that language and that they're, the language they're using is improper or, you know, harmful. stigmatizing, harmful, right? There's harm. Words matter. Um, of, um, I can't remember his name now. Um, Anyway, he basically so he basically went into a diatribe on the video uh, over clips of children detained at the border, saying that we don't know if they're carrying drugs, if these babies have drugs up their tops or whatever. So they need to be stopped. They need to be searched, etc., etc., etc. And she then pulled up FBI documents of amount of methamphetamines that were seized uh, at the border, and yeah. she, you know, made this causal relationship. Right? Uh, everyone in the room. I was just like horrified, but at the same time, you know, this obsession with freedom of speech and expression on campuses, you you can't really, I can't really take her to the cleaners mm-hmm. the way I'd want to in that, mm-hmm. in that context. But more importantly, what actually happened was there was, and this is CUNY, right? There was a Mexican student, Mexican-American student whose mother had gone over the border, right? Who both parents had actually come into the country from going across the border. And this had actually traumatized it. The presentation was so traumatizing she had to leave the room. Mm. She left the room in tears. So it's difficult like to sort of like yeah. straddle yeah. that. I think as an educator though, what I try to do, <clears throat> and I tell this every semester, is you need to be informed consumers of information. And the source of the information is a big deal. So maybe the FBI document is one thing, but Breitbart, like yeah. that state sponsored, yeah. you know, like, like I, I try to, I try to show them that where they get the information matters, right? And so, someplace like Breitbart or or, or other these, you know, hack hacks, that's not where you get. That's not, you know, or, or like the Center for Immigration Studies, which is just like this circular <laughs> center of immigration studies, is like with this other super conservative think tank, um, you know, like that's not a real center. They're just like, they're like, almost like all of them are in one room sharing information yeah. and spouting it out in different organizations, right? Like you need to be careful 
um, what I tell my students is like, be careful where you get your information from, right? And the source matters. Yeah. So like, I can't say, I'm not gonna allow Breitbart in this room, mm. although I think it's clear that I would have a problem if Breitbart was used in my room, right? And I don't have a problem with that. Like, I know that sometimes if my, in my evaluations, a couple of times they were like, oh, but you know, she's just really liberal or, and I'm not, I think liberal is an insult, but yeah. um, <laughs> like, you know, like a couple of times some students said like, oh, you know, she's a little bit too free with her opinions. And I might be, but, um, I'm, there's just certain things that I think need to be clear, right? And I cannot allow you to rely on state-sponsored news, right, as your source of information, right? Because that's not real news. It's fake news. It's not based on facts. And like, so I do try to, edu I do try to stress that facts matter, and the source of the information matter. And it's not about seeking the information that supports what you think. It's le letting the data lead you to the truth, right? right. Yeah, that also like makes me think of like this obsession with being just because you're able to say something doesn't mean it's like intellectually mm. yes. like accurate mm -hmm. or has any merit. And just because you can be harmful doesn't mean that there is like any like, merit. Although you know it. we live in a, and this is why it's so important, right, to stress that facts and truth matter and the source matters because we do live in a time where facts don't matter. <laughs> like I can, so I I gave a talk at the. Um, in Albany for an organization and I w we were talking about the data and and this woman was like but you know I mean what do people say when you show them the statistics you know I had people don't care mm -hmm. you know like we do live in a time because of all of this fake news and I hate to use that term but it is true right we have so many bogus sources of information people opening up a blog and using it and pretending it's news right, right? Um, there's so many bogus sources of information or, or ways in which people are disseminating whatever they want to say and then calling it information and data and facts and truth that now people don't care. People just accept whatever supports the idea. They're not allowing themselves to be informed by truth. They are seeking whatever they think is the truth. Right? Does that make, does that make yeah. sense? And that, you know, I think as educators, it's important for us to stress truth and facts matter. And, and that's what we have to keep doing. Yeah, because that was just her. She probably Googled, you know, whatever it was and, and did that. And that's easy to do. So I think that one of the things we need to do as educators is like, I always try to give a lesson on an academic investigation and what that means and what that looks like, what truth is, what facts are, you know. Because I mean, really, there are people now saying the earth is flat. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, like yeah. we are going so over the top with not, you know, with not, looking at truth and facts and research and whatever it's like it's just it's getting out of hand <laughs> well yeah i just just to add on to that i think Crickets. this idea of a no i think like i, I, mean, I should be clicking shouldn't i <laughs> i think this 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 myth of impartiality the impartial academic as well is just like really mm. ludicrous you just present so with what we're talking about today you know immigration crimmigration the criminalization of the immigrant quote-unquote other you know it comes from somewhere it comes from a national project of mm -hmm. white supremacy mm -hmm. of uh, mass expulsion of extractive capitalism whatever this is where it's coming from mm -hmm. and to present that as sort of this very neutral yeah. backdrop firstly it's actually academically disingenuous yes. firstly right yes. so even if you want to be like mm -hmm. rig a rigorous academic it's not 
Mm-hmm. It's not deep dive stuff. Yeah, how's an impartial one? We don't even yeah. hear of anybody else. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, like how is it that some social programs don't teach a W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. As as we were as this basic theory, right? Yeah. Like, how does that happen? So yeah, like come on. <laughs> so, and that's what my so my blog is the accidental academica because literally I was accidentally an academic. Like I don't even know how this happened. Like I I feel like. I felt I wanted to teach full time at the college level, and so I need a PhD to do that. I had no idea what I was getting into, and I think I'm fortunate to have surrounded myself and taken classes with like-minded individuals. And when I say like-minded, people who seek truth, right? Um, but it's an accidental process, and and as a Latina, in this process, it's also very challenging, right? Um, so this impartial, you know, impartiality, or um, what is it? The how, how does um, uh, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, Silva says it? He says um, me search, right? He was like, yeah. why, people call it me search, but it's research. But they try to discredit when you try to look at information that is other than a white mm-hmm. gaze. They call it me search, but it's research. It's yeah. real. Right. Um, so so you know, it, yeah, that's that's challenging. I don't know how we got to that, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, so I guess what would you say is your biggest takeaway from this research? What do you want people to come knowing from it, having read or looked at your, your work? I think not just for my research in general, not just the study. I want to stress that I truly feel that we are already in or on the verge of a crisis, a mental health crisis. In general, we don't address mental health, right? Um, we stigmatize mental illness, whatever. But when you have an apparatus like the immigration enforcement system inflicting this type of harm and pain, right? Because we haven't even touched upon the latest, mm-hmm. right? I'm just looking at research that began during a different administration um, and the product of policies that were passed way before this current administration. So we're not even touching upon, except for the, you know, the DACA um, recension and also like the denaturalization task force. You know, those we, we haven't even discussed what's happening at the border and mm. the cruelty and the vindictiveness right. of that stuff. Um, we are on, I feel like this is a crisis. Like if we see the mental health impact that 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 deportation and the vulnerability to deportation and just the way the immigration system is treating folks as harm, as cruelty, and how that is traumatizing people and causing real mental harm, that's a crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think we should see it as a crisis because if we're not already already there, we're on the verge of that, and, and, and we're just like, we're fucking people's lives up, right? Not just the family or the community, like individuals. It's just really messed up. And so I, I want us to see it as a crisis. Not that, you know, like, that sounds kind of terrible, but I think if we frame it, yeah, if we frame it as a crisis and a public health issue, I think that policies can be passed to combat that much more effectively Mm -hmm. than than the way I think it it gets framed sometimes, like, this particular family is suffering Mm -hmm. or this particular thing is happening. I think if we see it as a public health issue, mental health crisis on an entire population of people, being handed down by the state, I think that that would lead policies to be passed on a more wider level, I guess. I'm still working on how I'm going to discuss that. I'm still working on my elevator um, (laughs) summary on this. I think that's like the (laughs) clutch though, isn't it? Mobilizing resources Mm -hmm. and how we we do that. We'll probably 
gonna gonna call it there. Professor Shirley Layro, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That was our show. They Are Just Deportees was made possible with the assistance of the Office of the Advancement of Research John Jay College. Our music was produced and performed by Star One. My name is Nick Rodrigo. And my name is Daryl Lisa Avila Chevalier. We'll see you next time. <laughs>